0: Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin A More Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 110 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. I am going to talk today about a term, a quote, a comfort phrase that drives me nuts. And I'm talking about it because I had a recent experience that just got me thinking about it. So when you lose a child or have any sort of giant traumatic event happen to you, Human nature is initially to provide comfort and support to the tragedy survivor. So your house burns to the ground and people gather around and bring you clothing and food and take care of you in those first days and weeks after you've lost your house. Somebody dies and you have a funeral and people come and pay their condolences and, and all of this. You get sick, you, you develop an illness. You know, you go into rehab and you get out of rehab. So people have all these different things that happen to them. And each of these evokes a social response. And as with any social response based in human nature, you can get good response, you can get not so good response. In my process and journey in dealing with Molly's death, I have really redefined and have a really new group of friends. And it's not that the people I was friends with before Molly died aren't wonderful people and still important in my life, but a child loss changes you. And anyone that knew me before Molly died is always and forever going to remember that version of me. And less people than you would think can really truly be okay with a new version of Barb because so much of who I was and what I did and who I hung out with and all of that centered around the fact that I was the mother of two alive daughters. So I find when I ha- meet new friends and meet new people that if they're only ever meeting me now, they only know this Barb, they're much more willing to accept my forever grief and my desire to talk about Molly and my you know, stories about her, my stories about my grief, all of the things in my life that led up to her death and things that have happened after. I just find that to be true and it is not an insult at all to anyone listening who's known me for a long time. I have only a small handful of people that I truly no longer speak with and some of those separations go far deeper than Molly dying. One of the hardest phrases I have is everything happens for a reason. It's something that I've always, I've just always sort of not liked it, even before Molly died. Yes, there are reasons that everything happens. There are many, many reasons that things happen. But when people tell you, well, you know, everything happens for a reason, to me, that indicates everything happens for you to learn a lesson. Everything happens for a reason. Why did you meet that person? Why did you get cut from varsity and you made JV? You know, why did you you know, win the lottery, you know, why did you lose a child? Why did you marry the right or the wrong person? You know, you can look at anything and everything we do. And of course there are reasons behind everything, but that doesn't mean everything happens for a reason, that there there is some specific reason that only God knows about or the universe knows about. And someday you'll be lucky enough to find it out. Having said that, I absolutely firmly do believe that the universe and the powers that be, whatever they may are, however you may describe them, Definitely guide us in certain directions. If life were a river, we're in the river, I can swim, I can swim to shore and take a break. But if my journey is on that river, I can't ever leave the river. And so I go where the river goes. Okay, so there's my predestined life. The river that I'm in dumps out into whatever ocean it is and that's the ocean I'll get dumped into one day. It's a metaphor here, but you know. When people say to me, everything happens for a reason, I'm unbelievably ascended. And it's not that I... I'm angry at the person for saying it, but I take it very, very personally. Like, oh, really? So there was a reason for this. And the fact that I'm sad isn't enough. You have to remind me that not only am I sad, but someday I'll find out the reason that will somehow fix this. Now, as you're listening, I know a lot of you will be saying, no, no, that's not what I meant. I also have to say, I get this type of response primarily from people heavily involved in religion or universally sort of spiritually connected that the universe has reasons for things. In my child loss journey, I have never had an angel mom or an angel dad tell me everything happens for a reason. So where is the truth in here? So I asked my good old friend Siri to connect me with religious connections to the phrase, everything happens for a reason. What was interesting to me was, here are the three articles that came up. Everything happens for a reason, myth or biblical truth, question mark. The next article, the Bible does not say that everything happens for a reason. In the third article, dear Christians, stop saying everything happens for a reason. <laughs> ha, so what I don't like about it, and again, this is my reaction to it, but sometimes it doesn't matter what your intention is with what you say to somebody, how they receive it is how they experience it. And when people sort of tell me, well, you know, I hate to say it, but everything happens for a reason, what they're telling me, that I'm missing the point somehow. There's nothing comforting in being told that some horrible thing you're going through has some random reason somewhere that you'll find out. It just isn't helpful. So having said that, when I look at my grief journey and the experiences I've had and the people that I have met, the books I have stumbled upon or the books that have been recommended and the things I have found out in all of my searching, my a thousand tiny steps to trying to figure out the reason Molly died What I have learned is everything does have a reason. Everything has a million reasons. And that reason can change and be equally as true no matter who is telling it. What might be true for me might be completely differently true for Kenny. What might be true for Kenny might make no sense to Gracie, right? We all have reasons and reasoning behind what's happened to us and how we process what's happened to us. I am careful now and a bit more measured and quickly saying, oh my God, we were totally supposed to meet. This totally was supposed to happen. The universe knew I needed you, right? I measured in it, but it doesn't mean I don't sometimes sit in stunned awe at all the little steps that had to happen for two people to meet. I wrote a blog today. So today as I record this, it's September 20th. You'll be listening to this in early October, right around Columbus Day weekend, I think. And so I was coaching on a Friday night and my blog is about this woman named Caitlin who I met at CrossFit Amesbury. She was a drop-in and she was the only one that came to class that night. Now I had been away in Florida, so I had missed a couple of Friday nights, but this was her first time coming and she was the only one signed up for class. I was having a bit of a struggle. Going away is never restful for me. I need to reframe my thinking so that I don't come home angry that everyone else had a vacation but me because that's often how it feels for me. So I hadn't been back to CrossFit Amesbury for over a week. And I was not in a great mood. I was really kind of struggling. I'd gone for a walk, I'd done some working out, but I was I was just sort of in a in a slump. And I think some of it might've been, I that was just a couple of days after I completed the 75 hard. And I had a really hard time with the last couple of weeks of it. Not that I didn't want to continue and not that any specific task was difficult. I just was tired of it. Like some of the aspects of that challenge stopped being in my best interest. But I'm competitive and I did not want to say, well, I made it to day 60 because that would feel like a failure, which kind of ties into my feelings around everything happens for a reason. I have a nice teen class, two athletes. I have a nice CFA 45 class, five athletes. And I have one person signed up for the 515 CrossFit class. So I'm sitting there playing on my phone and I look up and there's a sweet woman staring at me whose name is Caitlin. So we got chatting and, and no one else showed up for class. And so she was the only one. So lucky for her, she gets a whole hour of barb. (laughs) But that isn't what was magnificent about the hour. However, I will say the hour that we had could never have happened had there been other people in class. It would have been much more about CrossFit fitness instead of CrossFit, the whole life solution to tragedy. So Caitlin and I started talking about life. I wrote about this all in a blog, which if you haven't read the blog, after you listen to this episode, go back and read it. It's on my blog page. So Caitlin and I got started and it was a relatively easy, technically speaking, CrossFit workout, but it was the kind of workout that made more sense for somebody who had done a lot of CrossFit. It was a lot of repetitions on one side at a time, pretty intensive Metcon. Metcon means metabolic conditioning and that's what CrossFit folk call the actual workout. I modified things a little bit for her so that it would make more sense and the movements would flow together better. But in the process of teaching her the movements and going through and and watching her, you know, watching her execute overhead press and push press and all the different things, We were talking, where are you from, where'd you grow up, where'd you go to college, all of those sorts of things. And in the process of this conversation, she tells me that she lost the love of her life, her partner. She referred to him three years ago in a plane crash. So I stopped because 29 at the time of this tragedy, so 32 now, the last thing you wanna do is lose the love of your life in a plane crash. You never wanna lose the love of your life, but when you're just starting out, when you're a few years into forever, When you have no idea in your head that you won't be with this person, that's a bad day. (laughs) And she didn't even have the benefit of like a week on life support. Although I do not know the details of the crash. So perhaps she did. We didn't get that deep into the conversation. So I stopped and I just said, oh, I'm so sorry. Three years, huh? Wow, you're just starting out. You're new in this journey. And that took her back because... Nobody says at three years that you're new in this journey. And I've said this to other people on their grief journey and received the same response. Society has this idea that after year one, you put it in a box and move on. And maybe that works for some people. Maybe putting things in boxes and tucking them away is how some people survive. It is not true, however, in reality for anybody. You can't put it away because it's still right there. It's still inside your heart. There's a little children's book I just bought called My Heart in a Bottle. And it's about a little girl whose dad died and she closes off. She just puts it away, puts her heart in a bottle so so it'll be safe. And she talks about how that prevents her from ever really loving anybody, for ever really taking chances, that you can't put your heart in a bottle. It explains a lot about Roy as well, at least my experiences with Roy. So of course we start talking and it's just she and I. And the workout all together, the actual workout minutes don't even add up to 30 minutes. We talk and we talk. So she says to me, well, you know, no one has ever said I'm really new in my grief journey. And I said, well, my daughter Molly died at age 13 seven years ago. And I still feel like I'm new in my grief journey. I, I don't even know how to navigate my life sometimes. To which she replied, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Well that's much worse than this or something to that effect. And I said, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. This is as bad as it will feel. No, no, we we are suffering a traumatic loss, you and me. And not only do we lose the person, we lose everything we were supposed to do with that person which is the startling, stunning difference between losing your mother at age 75 when your mother is 75, as opposed to losing your mother when she's 35, as opposed to losing your mother when you're 60, as opposed to losing your mother when you're 13, right? Very big difference. So yes, I know a lot of moms who have lost children that died in their 50s. The moms are in their 70s. Does it make their loss any less manageable? Probably not but they have a lot less ahead of them than I would have ahead of me with Molly and that Caitlin would have ahead of her with Dano. So we start talking and then I say, well, what was his name? Tell me about him. And her face just lightens up and she tells me all about this sweet boy, Daniel, who she called Dano. And they met at a Knowles conference. Knowles is National Outdoor Leadership School. They met and they each went to the Knowles conference with specific ideas in mind and they met and they fell in love and they... Put those ideas aside and got together and started living their life together. And I don't know exactly how many years they had together, but it was enough to know that they would be together forever and to to significantly start a life together. I don't think three years ago she thought she would be talking to me in a CrossFit gym back in her hometown. So we talked a lot about that. She asked me about Molly. I explained about Molly and her death. Caitlin had lived for a while in Wyoming, and so I talked about how much I loved Wyoming and Montana and the first time I saw the Grand Tetons and and what that nature, what nature is like. And I told her about Chaz, because that's why I had been out there to visit a boyfriend who was working in Yellowstone through the Student Conservation Association. So we talked about all those things. Then I shared with her that Chaz had unplugged Molly and she was dumbfounded, as many people are. You know, Chaz and I break up, 20 years go by, and then there's Chaz at the hospital and he's the one to unplug Molly. That's fairly significant coincidence. So we began talking a little bit about how, how serendipitous some things are and does the universe really set things in motion to happen and does everything really happen for a reason? Like, did I date Chaz because someday I'd have a daughter with Kenny and he'd unplug her? You know, No. Although maybe. We talked about the fact that so much of our lives here on earth are lived in the forest, that if life is a mountain and and heaven is on top, all you see as you're climbing are the trees. You can't see the forest for the trees is a saying that makes a lot of sense. When you're in the middle of a forest, all you can see is the trees around you. When you look too far away, you just see a blur of more trees. When you start to crest the tree line, the trees become thinner. When you're climbing a mountain and you turn around, you might still be looking through the trees, but straight ahead from those trees is open air because you're, you're getting higher and higher. So things look very different from the top of a mountain. And there are connections that you can make. The topography of the land suddenly makes sense. Oh, there's the roof of the... Parking garage, and there's the lake. I never realized that's where they were to each other because you can't see it that way when you're at the lake or in the parking garage, right? You have to be up on that mountaintop or the hillside and look down. And life is like this. So we got talking. We talked the whole time. I mean, it was the most profound, <sighs> it was unbelievable. It was, I, I never knew how much I needed that visit until I had it. She felt the same way. So one of the things we talked about was that saying, everything happens for a reason, and how anger producing this was that people just said, They just said terrible things sometimes and they didn't mean to. They were trying to comfort, but what we need is not comfort in the traditional sense. I don't need someone to tell me I'm going to be okay. I am not going to be okay. And yes, I'll be okay. That is totally dictated by me, not what by somebody tells me. I don't need someone to sit down and say, don't be sad. I have a couple of really good friends and mothers, parents of Molly who would say, don't be sad. Those memories should make you happy. Well, only somebody with All their children alive could even utter a phrase like that. That's the last thing I would say to somebody that had lost, suffered a traumatic loss. Because, yes, of course, I smile when I think of Molly and I think of memories. I'm looking at her seventh grade picture right now and I remember the day and it makes me happy. And then it rips me apart because she's not here. What would she look like at 20? I'll never know. And I'm supposed to know, right? We talked about, you know, she talked about her plans. She is a a restoration landscaper. So I said, what does that mean? Is that like saving wetlands and ecosystems? And she said, yeah, that's exactly what it is, which kind of made me feel smart. But right now she's living on the coast in Massachusetts on the Cape and she's working with, you know, the seacoast environment on the Cape is very fragile. So I don't know specifically what she does day to day, but I know there it's about protecting beaches and the wetlands that are inland on the Cape and making sure that things don't get built where they shouldn't. And we're not filling areas in that shouldn't be filled in and that sort of thing. So we had wonderful conversations about that. Dano was a carpenter, he built things. And I have a soft spot for carpenters. <laughs> My very annoying first husband was a restoration carpenter. He did beautiful things and we talked about him. My Pepo was a carpenter, we talked about him. The carpenter that's redoing our kitchen is amazing. I talked about him. We talked about how carpentry is so much more than seeing with your eyes. When you, when you see in your mind something you wanna build and create, you don't simply create it through a mathematical formula and measurements and tools. You see the whole product. You have an emotion to it. You have a vision for it. You have a connection somewhere. And so I realized that Dana was a pretty profoundly special person, as is Caitlin. And then we had conversations about why are the nicest people the ones that go? And we got talking about when people say everything happens for a reason. And both of us agreed completely that <laughs> we're giving you a public service announcement here. That's the last thing you say to anybody that's really grieving. That that's something they can come to on their own. And you might believe that with every fiber of your being, but that isn't the reality, nor is it a helpful thing to say. I talked about the fact that, of course, she's 32. Three of my sort of closest friends right now are in their 30s. I have Zoomy Zoom, Emily Sukenik, and Bethany Judge. They're all in their 30s. So, of course, I would meet you, and of course, we would click. You're in your 30s. <laughs> I talked about how the good thing about having young friends is that when I'm 100, there will still be people alive to come to my funeral. <laughs> That's you know sort of the jokey part. But to say that our meeting was profound would be an understatement. And we also talked about the role of CrossFit in my life and how I found CrossFit when I was devastated after the loss of my job. And Sky, one of my former athletes, brought me to White Mountain CrossFit and it saved my life. CrossFit saved my life. It gave me focus and purpose. I got healthy and fit and strong again. I had a community of friends that Most of these people didn't know me before I lost my job. So there was no judgment on were all the rumors true and all that sort of thing. And so it was incredibly life-saving. When Molly died, John Farwell came to the hospital and when we got home, he gave us about a month and then he said, you get Gracie in here. Lots of people, especially early on in CrossFit, some of the earliest CrossFit gym owners and CrossFitters themselves were military people that had suffered horrific experiences in the military. CrossFit gyms and CrossFit programming Saved them. And I talked about someone like her with her recent loss and all that goes along with it that CrossFit gyms would be a wonderful place for her to find people and that this might be a way to connect with people her age with similar interests and similar ideas about health and life. It's not Planet Fitness where you put your headphones in and ignore the people around you. There are so many different ways to work out now, all of them centered on creating community, especially workout programs centered toward women. But my point with her was that CrossFit in general was a community-based fitness ideology where as important as the size of your biceps and how well you execute a clean and jerk is how kind you are to those around you, how committed you are to the common good in the gym and how, how willing you are to finish your workout and cheer for those that are still finishing. So we talked about that. I told her about Gracie. The hour ended and we both started to cry and I asked if I could hug her. And we hugged. Unlike me, she's not on social media at all. And you know, she sort of said, I suppose I should get back on there. And I'm like, oh heck no, you have to do what works for you. And so then we talked about something else that we had in common in our grief journey. And that was the idea of just staying still. Let me say that staying still isn't just physical stillness, although that's a huge piece of it. It's just maintaining stillness, an internal equilibrium that is unchallenged. So any movement upsets the balance. So picture a tightrope between two tall buildings, right? So we're standing on that tightrope. It's not just physical balance that will throw us up; not just a strong wind that will knock us over. If a beautiful bird flies by and sings a song and we, we smile, that will knock us over. If it starts to downpour and it ruins the blouse we're wearing, we get sad, that will knock us over. You know, like it's not just physical stillness, it's all of it. So I told her how I was glued to my phone, that I didn't have the energy necessarily to talk to a lot of people face-to-face. But I was online all the time. I just scrolled my grief groups. I scrolled and scrolled and scrolled. And I read comments. I read other posts. I looked at people's profiles. I found out about other children that had died. I was a disaster. And I spent hours of my day looking at these social media sites I spent hours of my day sitting in a chair. The front of me was as brown as could be. I sat in the lawn in my yard. The back of me as white as could be. I couldn't function. In the car, I wouldn't fasten my seatbelt because the beep, beep, beep of the seatbelt alarm was enough noise to distract me, but not so much noise that it upset me. I tried listening to talk radio, but sometimes the topics were triggering. I tried listening to rock music, but it was music. I couldn't stand music at all. The lyrics, all of it. I went to CrossFit because I needed to get out of the house. I needed to move around. But if I pushed myself too hard, I'd start to cry. I'd just start to cry. And I remember one time sitting on a box and I just started bawling and John came over and just hugged me, hugged my face right into his stomach and just continued coaching the class. I was such a fucking hot mess. It was awful. The look of relief and understanding on Caitlin's face was profound because she felt the same way, absolutely the same way. That in the stillness was the safety. She never left her house. It was right around COVID that her, her death occurred. And so everybody was isolated and she found that to be helpful. She didn't have quite the community that I had. She had a small community, but a community that was so utterly disrupted by the, by the loss of Dano that it wasn't easy for her to stay there. We had communities that were very difficult for us to stay in as well, but fortunately they were big enough and varied enough that there was a way that we could find comfort. I don't know any of the details of, of the family support and what kind of funeral he had or any of those things. We didn't talk a lot about that. I did talk about Molly's memorial show. I showed her my tattoo and, and talked about Rachel and the kidney and all of that. I, I told her all of it, talked about Jack. And she just took it in because to, to her, I'm representing somebody that's four years ahead of her in this horrifying journey. And I know, I know that I'm the same way. Kenny and I are that way for the hungers as well. When they're going through something, Nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 10, let's do that. Kenny and I can relate almost exactly to what they're going through and have a story to share or an acknowledgement that lets them know that we get it. That's what my, my relating and sharing with her did. It just gave her, well, maybe I'm assuming all this, but, but from our conversation, it really just gave her comfort to know that, okay, here I am coaching in a CrossFit gym and I've had this horrible loss and all of this and I'm somehow okay. And she's doing amazing things. The other thing we talked about was, was following up on the plans that you said you'd do. So I told her about Molly's friend, Derek, and how his deathbed promise was to make it big, that he promised he would make it big. Keisha had some of those promises too, that she would go for it and get really good at theater and sing solos. And, and she did. She dove into theater, dove into theater, as did Derek dive into dance. Keisha was cast in a play in New York City two weeks into moving there. And Derek is on Broadway and he just turned 20 people do continue their paths and oftentimes in honor of the person that they lost. So she just finished a grad school program, like a 10 month, like a one year program in her field of the restoration landscaping, you know, ecology, all that. And I asked, how was it? And she said, well, it was good because I met like-minded people. I have a community now. I have people that I just met, but it was hard because this was our plan. Dana, we were going to come back here together and I was going to be at school and I did it anyway. And I was so proud of her because it's just so easy to bail. You know, I gave up on a lot of things I had planned on in my life. I couldn't function. I have such honor and admiration for her. Now she she didn't have a child, you know, or a significant other to sort of maintain in this loss. She really was isolated and alone and truly just had herself, which is a blessing and a curse. It doesn't lessen or minimize what she went through. It's just different. But I told her, that's amazing that you did that. Please make sure you give yourself a pat on the back for that. And you know, she took all of this in. She took all of it in the biggest thing I got from this meeting was that even though our grief journeys were different, the person we lost is different. The timing is different. Our ages and life experiences are different. We shared, utterly shared at a visceral, deep, deep level, so much of truth in our grief journeys. And even though we experienced them differently and expressed them differently, I totally understood her and she totally understood me. So what does this have to do with hating the term, everything has a reason? Everything happens for a reason. I guess... What we don't like with a lot of what people tell us is that sometimes it sounds judgmental or like a brush off or a way to comfort them. That the hardest part of grieving is that the griever, us, it's my responsibility to make sure my grief doesn't make the rest of the world uncomfortable. And she absolutely got it. And she she has just now, I think, is starting to really see that she can meet people and make connections and that that's okay, that her grief can be fine and accepted and not a burden to people. But when you're with a group of people that all know the person who died or you know, everyone wants you to move on. I gave her Cindy Flanagan's analogy of a highway. Grief is a highway. You're crawling up the highway, Caitlin, crawling because Dano was your person. Someone that only knew Dano briefly, maybe did one carpentry project with him, is already at exit 50. They didn't know Dano. Yes, his death would shock them and sadden them, But a few weeks later, it wouldn't come to mind all that much because he wasn't somebody in their life. That was a really helpful way for me, not only to understand and be okay with where I was at, but that to understand where other people were at, that they weren't being insensitive. Some of the things they said might appear insensitive, but it wasn't coming from a place of insensitivity. It was just coming from where they were. And I try to remember that as much as I can. So I do believe, I do firmly believe that I was supposed to meet Caitlin. I do. I was supposed to meet her. I think I was supposed to coach on that night. I think no one else was supposed to sign up. And I think we were supposed to meet. We've chatted back and forth. She sent me this beautiful picture. Again, if you haven't read the blog post, you have to go back and read it. A couple of, of her and Dana, one they're smiling at the camera, one they're looking at each other. So I put them both on the blog and we've texted back and forth a few times. I just feel really honored to know her. Another thing that we could share is what we really benefit from, what helps us the most. I told her the story of my friend Deb coming over and just sitting in the yard with me and putting my legs in her lap and just being okay with sitting and holding my legs. And I had nothing to give Deb that day, nothing. I just sat for a long time. She agreed that sometimes really what she needed was just somebody to be with her. What was great about our meeting is that I was truly interested in Dano because I wanted to know all about him because his death clearly, clearly decimated her and continues to sometimes. But I know how helpful and wonderful it is for her to talk about. I love talking about Molly. And I know that asking about Dano doesn't make her more sad. She gets to talk about him. I'm saying his name. I've said his name multiple times in this podcast. That keeps him alive. That keeps him a a viable and meaningful part of life. She's here. I'm here. I have pictures of Molly behind me if you're watching, but she's not here, right? I'm surrounded by pictures of Molly. There's one over there. There's one down there. There's one over there. Hi, Molls. So it was a beautiful, wonderful thing. It just was. And I feel really lucky. And I'm hoping, I truly hope that my connections with Caitlin continue, that there's a bigger life path for us, a bigger connection. I have connections in Moab. Moab is one of the favorite places she's been with Dano. But the biggest piece is that even sitting here in my house or on my porch, I just know that there's another soul on this planet that gets it in a way that I get it. And we were able to share that wonderful thing. It also reaffirms in me my connection and continued participation in CrossFit. I know that my CrossFit coaching can get in the way of the logistics of this podcast, of the Molly B Foundation, of getting my blog done. You know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to recreate a schedule for myself. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> and am I self-sabotaging? You know, all of the self-analysis, all of the thousand tiny steps, right? <laughs> Maybe my next podcast effort will be one giant step. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. But I think that there was a reason that Caitlin and I met, and I think there was a ton of reasons we met. And to take away the judgmental piece, the the proclamation that, don't worry, everything happens for a reason, well, okay. (laughs) To take that away from this and to talk about the reasoning behind us meeting, I think if the universe does strive and endeavor to create us opportunities for happiness, then it sets it forward for us, and it's our job to pick up the pieces and see where they lead, right? In my online research of religious connections to everything happens for a reason, one of the articles talked a little bit about connections between living through God's will. If God was really behind everything, then why do horrible things happen? And I've I've often said that. If God was behind Molly's death, what the heck does that even mean? That's not fair. Like, how can that be? Well, because we live here. So if there is some sort of universal spiritual reason behind Molly's death, I'll find that out when I die. And maybe that's what people mean. But ultimately in this human reality, in this physical reality that we are a part of, we have too much yes, no, black, white, green, yellow, up, down choices that can very much indicate our next direction or our next action or our next event. And God is not in control of every thought we have. That's where we come in. And so My decision to continue coaching CrossFit, my decision to keep that an active, viable part of my life isn't just for the money or the ego fulfillment I get from running a successful class. It's because I meet some really amazing people, so many amazing people in that reality. I have three gyms. There are amazing people in all of them. And so I'm just lucky. I'm lucky for that. Everything happens for a reason. Okay. But I'm never going to say that to you in a time of grief or worry or anxiety. I'm never going to say that ever. There are many reasons things happen. <laughs> Maybe I'll say that. At any rate, I enter October feeling a little bit better than I felt entering September. Once summer's done, I remember when I was a full-time teacher and I would be total summer mode. And once I was two or three days of school had happened, it was like summer never existed. And I was all wrapped up in school and I was fine. It was the dread, the anticipation that was difficult, right? Once I'm in it, I'm in it. As we talk, as I record rather, we have selected a fridge and stove and dishwasher. Our kitchen plans are moving forward quickly. We are on a time frame now where it will happen. We're shooting for the middle of October, but more likely it will be the beginning of November. We have plans for our little temporary kitchen. We have it all sort of put together. The other big piece of news I have is that I have a book release date, which by the time you hear this, I, you probably will already know about because I will have had it all over social media. October 24th. So on October 24th at Gibson's bookstore in New Hampshire will be a book signing and an event with Virginia McGregor and myself about the release of Motherland. So I'm really excited about it. I'm excited for a number of reasons. A, it's a pretty huge stressful thing to know that you're gonna have a book out there with your name on it. And I'm happy about that. I'm utterly grateful to Virginia and I have met amazing people at Atmosphere Press. Really an amazing, amazing publishing company. If you're ever looking to publish a book, Boy, do they walk you through it and make sure everything is just the way you want it to be. I'll do a bunch afterwards. We had a wonderful phone meeting and I'll be able to sell it on the Bolly B Foundation website. And I'm going, to do, I'm going to do some other book signings at other bookstores. So I'm very, very excited about that. That's that. I will have a published book and a new kitchen by year's end. Yay! <laughs> Lucky me. That's what's in my heart right now. And by the time you hear it, I'll have a lot of other things in my heart. But thank you, Caitlin. I hope someday you listen to this. (laughs) You really made my Friday night and I've had you in my heart, and in my head a ton since then. I'll also give a late shout out to my Auntie Sheila. She's a new Grammy again. She has a little baby granddaughter who as of this recording, I don't know the name. By the time it comes out, she'll be three weeks into her name. And a lot of love also to Sheila because her mom went to heaven. So Auntie Sheila, I love you. All right, everybody. Be good to yourself eat well, sleep enough, be kind, make good choices. (laughs) Or if you make bad choices, just enjoy them and then own up to them after. Be kind to other people, be good to someone else, pay it forward a teeny tiny bit in the smallest of ways. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore four, four, four on Facebook as Barb Higgins and at my website, a thousand tiny And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.